Well, camping can be stressful. Stressful just getting reservations to come to Yosemite. Stressful packing for Yosemite. Stressful driving to Yosemite. It's stressful just waiting in line to pay your money to come into Yosemite. It's stressful setting up camp. Stressful trying to eat at camp. (laughs) Stressful trying to sleep at camp. And many of us think that stress has no good purpose in life. Uh, But actually, uh, we were designed to eat stress for breakfast. Uh, We were designed to actually cope well with stress. The whole question is, how do we respond? We're going to read the book of James this week. Uh, We're going to be studying from Jesus' brother. How would you like to grow up in the home with Jesus himself, the perfect brother? That would be tough. Consequently, none of his siblings believed in him during his life. But James, his half-brother, came to a saving knowledge of the Lord after Jesus died and became a leader in the church of Jerusalem. His style of speaking and writing is much like Jesus himself. You recognize the Sermon on the Mount, in a sense. Uh, You recognize the straightforwardness. You recognize the knowledge of the Old Testament. Uh, You recognize style of telling it like it is. And so we find in the book of James an extremely practical and straightforward book as to how to live. And particularly how it is that he wants us to work out our faith. I'm reading from James chapter 1, verse 1. James, a bondservant of God, calls himself a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, a slave of his own brother. He speaks of his brother in his full name, the Lord, that is God himself, Jesus, his given name, Christ, the promised Messiah, he speaks of him as co-equal with God himself. Very briefly, he just says, I'm writing to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad. Greetings. So he's speaking to his own Jewish kinsmen who aren't living in Palestine or near Jerusalem, but are spread out and dispersed and are likely suffering persecution and difficulties. Without any other ado, he gets right into it and shocks us by saying, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. When he says all joy, he's saying full, unmixed joy, no grief at all. How could we, when we face stress, when we face difficulties, when we have trials in our lives, various kinds of adversity, various kinds of affliction, consider it a good thing? Well, it certainly isn't pleasant, but it's good for us. 
And that's something that really has to change about how we're thinking. My students, for example, would love to be as lazy as I permit them to be. And they do such things as to lie to me and say, we just love the way you teach. We would just like to hear you teach more. You don't need to examine us at all. Just teach us. What liars they are. They don't want to be held accountable for actually learning. And similarly, we have to ask ourselves, why did God let this stress into our lives? I invite you to try to find a character in the scripture who didn't have a hard time, who didn't face difficulty, who just had it easy all the way through. You can't find that description. And you may see a friend across the way whose life seems so much better than yours and an easy life and a happy life, and you suggest that person must have no problems in his life. Not true. We all suffer difficulty. We all suffer trials. Consequently, a lot of it is about our attitude and our response. If we know God has allowed these trials into our lives for a purpose of developing us to become more Christ-like, that's how we would face it with joy. We face it with joy because it's meant as a test of our faith that will develop our character and produce in us the Christ-like character of endurance, steadfastness, constancy, patience, resilience. Jesus was like that when he faced trials. Jesus was capable of being the same person no matter what he was going through. Just recently, as we're getting ready to come uh, up to Yosemite, we went to the beach. Uh, you may have heard that it was like 113 degrees down in Southern California. And most of us uh, retreated uh, to the beach. Uh, we found that the air was cooler there. There was a breeze. It was a nice place to be. We locked most of the stuff in the car. I took my key, and since I was wearing a bathing suit with no pockets, I tucked it into the side of my bathing suit there and went and sat on the beach until I couldn't stand any longer and went in the water and swam. And it wasn't until later in the day I realized that my key had washed away. Carol thought, well, all we have to do is get my key out of my purse. And I said, well, first of all, the key isn't in your purse. I took it out because it stopped working. Something was wrong with the battery or I dropped it. Maybe the electronics was wrong or something. I left it at home. And she said, well, all we need to do is go home and get the key. And I was saying, the problem with these newfangled things is there is no actual key. This is my house key. It's not the car key. You push a button to start the engine. This thing communicates with the computer to say, I really am who I say I am, and the car can start. I said, the problem with the extra key is that it's broken. It won't work. We're really stuck. That's what you call stress. And so I started calling various uh, family members, you know, wondering who would have uh, mercy on us. And I found one 
who was at work, who got himself covered for work so he could drive home and, and get the extra device that was broken. And I said, well, at least it has a blade inside of here that'll allow us to open the door, which will get Carol's purse, which will at least get my wallet and purse back. So now we can start being able to function because how do you function without a wallet or a purse? And Carol, who has more faith than I did, said, well, I'm just going to pray that the broken fob works. And I said, you don't understand. The whole reason it's not in your purse is it's broken. I was going to get another one, but I just hadn't gotten it yet. It's not going to work. But my son went and got it, drove it down to us. And Carol says, just try it. And so I clicked it and the doors open. And she goes, start the engine. And I said, and so I got in, I pushed the button, the engine started. And I was saying, this is amazing. At the end of all this, she complimented me. She says, you handled that really well. If we understood that what God is trying to do in our lives by allowing stress and difficulties in our lives is to cause us to stop trusting in ourselves, but instead turn to him in faith and believe him for the impossible and to ask him to work through our lives to be able to serve others, then we are developing Christ-like character. We'll ask God for things that we would never dare ask him for. We'll trust him for things that we'd never dare trust him for. We would never do these things without stress. And consequently, these trials are proofs of our faith. If there's a theme to James, it's being a doer of the word, not just a hearer of the word, a person who actually lives out his faith. And he's saying, I need to help you grow so that you won't just be a person who hears and thinks about it, but a person who actually lives it out. I need you to trust in me, believe in me, follow me, do what I asked you to do. That will require a testing of your faith that produces endurance. I grew up loving the water. I grew up in Southern California. We had a pool in our backyard. My parents bought a boat. Uh, we used that to water ski until we were tired. Then we would fish. All of us grew up to buy boats as we were adults. All of us water ski. None of us fish. That is a testimony to the quality of fisherman my dad was. And I taught my kids to love water. My wife saw her best friend drown when she was in sixth grade and said, all of our kids will learn to swim at the youngest age possible. So about the time they could first stand on their own two feet, we had them in the water teaching them to swim. They could swim underwater with their eyes open, sometimes their mouth open, but they learned to swim <laughs> right away. And we taught them competitive swimming as well. The strange thing about competitive swimming is that it requires endurance. If there were a sport that would force you beyond what you believe your ability is to just keep going and going and going, it's competitive swimming. 
I wished I had been in it. Two of my older brothers had been competitive swimmers for about a week or two. (coughs) My oldest brother said, I was the fastest one in the pool. Why do I have to practice? But they wanted us to practice and practice and practice. I'm not going to do that. I'm already fast. You'll never be fast enough if you're not willing to put in the work to produce endurance. Swimmers swim seven miles a day. And their coaches have them do things that they would say to themselves don't make any sense. They have them run. And they're going like, I'm supposed to swim. Why am I running? For cross training. They have them lift weights. You go like, I'm a swimmer. Why am I lifting weights? To gain strength. God is going to ask you to do things you wouldn't expect to do so that he will produce in you the Christ-like character of endurance. So let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect. That's a deep spiritual maturity. Complete, that means fully developed in every part, a well-rounded maturity, thoroughly mature, lacking in nothing. All my life I've worked with college students, and in one sense they're, they're brilliant, they're mature, uh, they're amazingly resourceful. On the other sense, they can be completely flaky. They can be stupid at times and foolish and find themselves doing things that are completely contrary to what is wise. And you say, well, what's wrong with a college student? He lacks maturity. So you can grow to the point where you love the Lord with all your heart, you think. And where you're going to follow him with all of your strength and your might, you think. But you're inconsistent until you gain maturity. So let endurance have its perfect result. And so the formula here that we're discovering is, I actually need trials in my life that force me to stop depending on myself and force me to trust in God because it takes me outside of my ability to care for my own decisions and my own abilities, I have to say, God, you'll have to do this. I can't do this. And it produces in me a level of maturity that I never would have had any other way. So we have to ask ourselves, it's already almost 10 o'clock in the morning, in what ways have I been dependent upon myself and in what ways have I actually been dependent upon God? How has God taken me out of my comfort zone and forced me to rely solely on him? How has he stressed me yet even this morning? When I was a college president, I ate problems for breakfast. You're constantly solving issues over and over and over throughout the day. But I'd regularly catch myself and say, have you taken this to the Lord yet? Why are you trying to do this in your own mind, in your own strength, Turn to the Lord. That's our whole lives, brothers and sisters, where he's constantly saying to us, have you asked me for wisdom? Have you turned to the word of God for an answer to this? Are you trusting in yourself and your own abilities? Sometimes we say, well, all I need is money and I can solve this. And he talks about that. He talks about the rich people who will trust in their riches. He talks about the poor people who can't turn to money to solve their problems. Whether we're rich, rich, whether we're poor, 
we have to learn that my dependence must be completely upon him and for the wisdom that comes from the word of God. And I have to trust in him by faith and not in my own efforts in order to have complete maturity and consistency in my ability to follow him, to be who God wants me to be. Verse 5, then, is an invitation to come to him and ask him. He says in verse 5, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach. I don't know if you ever wondered if you could ask somebody for something where you said like, oh, I just wish I could ask him, wish I could ask him, but he'll probably make me feel stupid if I ask him for things. That's kind of the relationship between a faculty member and a student. We live that every day of our existence in which people are afraid to ask questions. Just ask and I'll help you. He says, ask me for wisdom I won't make it difficult for you. I'll give you what you need. But here is the catch. You have to ask this in faith. Verse 6. Without doubting. Carol said I did pretty well in losing the keys. Where I didn't do well is believing that the dead fob would work. Logically, it made no sense to me. Logically, I said I've already tested it. That's why it's in the drawer, not in your purse, is because it doesn't work. It needs to be replaced. What did she do? She said, well, we need it. You lost the good one. We have an extra. Let's just ask God to solve it. Now, why didn't I ask? Because that's an impossible thing. That would take a miracle. It's not going to work. That's the difference between people who have faith and people who don't. You ask God for impossible things. Notice what he says. You must ask in faith. This is asking for wisdom. How do I handle these difficulties you're allowing in my life? Ask in faith without doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. Have you ever seen the sea with the wind hitting it? It's driven both horizontally and tossed vertically. The trial itself is an invitation to stop trusting in ourselves and to transfer our dependence to God, asking him for wisdom by faith. Let me say that again. It's so important. The trial is an invitation to stop trusting in ourselves and to transfer our dependence to God Asking him for wisdom by faith. And what's the penalty? Verse 7, he says, The man who is double-souled or double-minded, the one who doubts, ought not expect that he will receive anything from the Lord. So if I say to God, I can't get into this car because I have a dead fob, I'm not even going to send my son to go get it and bring it. Where is the answer? There is no answer. I will not get in the car. I have to ask God for what I believe is impossible to do in order for him to very quickly make our car available to us. Otherwise, we'll be, verse 8, a double-minded man, a two-souled man, a man of divided allegiance, 
walking around like a staggering drunk, like an unbeliever. I'll be a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Then he brings up two kinds of people in the local assemblies. Overwhelmingly, the people in these Jewish assemblies are poor. But they do have some rich people. And he says, each of you have your own tribulations. He says, verse 9, the brother of humble circumstances should, should not focus on his inability to buy what he needs, but glory in his high position of relationship with God. In other words, he takes his eyes off of himself and his humble experiences and instead places his dependence on God and the high position that we have of being a child of the king and just in faith depends upon God. So when I teach, sometimes I teach people here in America. Sometimes I teach people who are quite knowledgeable. Sometimes I teach people who don't know much about the scripture. As I've traveled abroad, sometimes I'm teaching people who have not had much of a background in the scripture. And as I've traveled way out into the bush, as far as you can go to people who are living in stick huts, those people listen to the word of God better than any other people I teach. They'll walk for miles on foot, even in the dark, to listen to what I'm about to say. The mothers will sit there in the front row nursing their babies, but listening intently. They're little toddlers who in our culture would be running around and climbing underneath the benches and all, sit there in rapt attention, and I don't even speak their language. This is all going to them by translation. There is no group more interested in what I have to say than the most primitive people out in the bush. And that should teach us something about ourselves, about a brother in humble circumstances who is eager to learn. Our comfort in the United States, our ability to care for ourselves, our ability to, why watch the World Cup and Yosemite National Park of all things. Think of all the creature comforts that we have. I'm going to change my name to Ken D'Artois now that France won. We have so much that we hardly feel like we need to depend upon God. But the poor person is so poor that he has to depend on God. It would be good for us to run out of money and not be able to care for ourselves. And you'd say like, that'd be stress. But it'd be good for us. Because it would teach us that provision will come from God in a way that we did not expect. There was one point uh, not too many years ago in which uh, we didn't have money to pay our bills. We were totally out of money. And I was asking the Lord, uh, how can you provide for us? Uh, We need some way. And it occurred to me that all the coins that we've been keeping, we've been putting in these little peanut butter jars and sticking them in the closet, the linen closet. We filled up one 
peanut butter jar, then filled up another peanut butter jar, and then I think we got like a, a glass gallon bottle that had pickles in it at one point, started filling up that jar. And our youngest son had discovered the stash of coins, and I didn't give him any allowance, but he got plenty of allowance just by sneaking into the closet and pilfering uh, from these various jars. As I was praying, asking the Lord to provide for us financially, I suddenly recalled, well, we have coins. We can eat with coins. So we went in, and I had the big gallon jar and a couple of peanut butter jars, and thankfully our bank had one of those machines where you just pour it in, including the buttons that it kicks out and any other (laughs) stuff that fell in. $425 worth of coins. I was rich. I was rich and didn't even know it. Didn't even think about it until I asked the Lord, will you provide for us? The brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position, even though he's facing trials, because it's an invitation to turn to God and ask him for wisdom. But he must ask in faith. And through this circumstance, your dependence upon God will grow. And your ability to have your character will be strengthened and he'll produce in you the endurance that you need for the next trial. Verse 10, the rich man, however, is to glory in his humiliation because like flowering grass, he'll pass away for the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass and its flowers falls off and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So, too, the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. Being rich is also a trial because of the lure to be dependence to be dependent on your ability to care for yourself and he says you have to get to the point where your contentment is not on your ability but your dependence upon god how quickly you can lose your money how much you need to learn that money really means little unless it is spent on God's work. If we just spend it on ourselves, it's completely used up in selfish purposes. If it is spent on the work of the Lord, it can accomplish spiritual things. Remember the parable that Jesus told of the unjust steward where he complimented him for thinking ahead? He was telling his disciples, Here's a corrupt person, but at least he thinks ahead and he uses his money to try to provide for his future. You need to think about providing for the future by sending your money on ahead, by using it for a spiritual work so that you meet in heaven the people that have come to a saving knowledge of the Lord because of the work that you used your money to accomplish. Verse 12, blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Most of our translations make a distinction between the trial that God allows into our lives and the temptations that we feel in our own lives. This verb form here is the same verb form from verse 3. And when we go to verse 13 of the, ver- uh, the word 
translated temptation, it's the same word used in verses 2 and 12, which means that the same stress in our life can be used for good in developing righteous endurance, or that stress can be used by our flesh as an invitation to sin. The same circumstance can go two ways. It can build us up or it can tear us down. And so he says, truly happy is the man who endures under this test. For once he's been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. My freshman year at Biola, I was so excited to get away from home, so excited to be out on my own for the very first time, living in the dorms. Everyone's my own age, uh, getting to study the Bible. I was a Bible major at, at Biola. And I was having the time of my life. At Biola, they give exams three times a semester, five-week, ten-week, and final exams. I came to the, fin- the five-week exams, so uh, a month and a week into my fun experience, and I got all C's on all those exams. I was not used to getting C's. I was used to getting A's. And so I thought there was something wrong. I went to the bookstore and bought a book on how to study. I read the book on how to study, and it dawned on me, it's not that I don't know how to study. It's that I'm having fun. I'm not even studying. All I need to do is study. If we want to be approved, we actually have to put in the work. My favorite prof was the prof who taught the survey courses through the Old Testament and the New Testament. His name is Curtis Mitchell. I loved the way he taught. I learned so much from him. But he was such an exacting teacher. His exams were so picky. I remember him teaching about how the patriarchs had lived to very old ages. Methuselah, for example, a ridiculous number of ages. And as I was studying for that exam, one of the sophomores came along and said, you need to know how long the patriarchs lived. And I said, you're just pulling my leg. He goes, no, he's going to ask you how long they lived. I thought, like, well, the whole point is they lived a long time, not how long they lived. He goes, he's going to ask you. So I thought, okay, well, I'll memorize maybe the top three how long they lived. He asked more than the top three. And I was going like, why? I can remember in high school when my history teacher teaching geography says, I'm going to give you an exams on the, on the rivers of the world. And I thought that meant major rivers <laughs> of the world. Okay, I'll remember the Mississippi, the Nile, the Danube, I can remember, all the fun ones. No, it was actually a test on the rivers of the world. I got so hurt by doing so poorly on that that I decided, since I love the prof, that I would excel. And I ended up being the number one social studies student in my high school. In college, I went to my prof, Curtis Mitchell, and I said, why are you asking such picky questions? And he said to separate the A's from the B's. Well, I was all the way down on the sea, so I was like, this is crazy. The only way to do well on his exams is to know everything. Now, you can't know everything if you study for three hours. You're going to have to start before the night, before the exam. 
You're going to have to start like a week in advance. You're going to have to study like three hours a night for a week in order to pass these exams. And so I did. I loved the man, and I wanted to learn from him, and I didn't want to get C's from him. And so I said, I'll know everything. And when I went to his exams, I was loaded for bear. I was going like, give me any question you want. I know it. I didn't even need the multiple choice. I would just look at the question. I'd know the answer. I'd say, oh, good, you have the right answer there. And I'd mark the answer. <laughs> I ended up TAing for him. He gave me my first opportunities to teach at the college. He recommended me to teach at the seminary. I'm in teaching because he was a hard tester, but a lovely man. And I wanted to please him. And so I did what he asked me to do. And I knew everything. Now, how much more should we love God and say, I want to please you. I want to do everything you ask of me. And if you ask this of me, I'll do it. Blessed, truly happy is a man who perseveres or endures under the trial or the test. For once he has been approved, that means you've stood the test. That means you passed. I have students that come to my office and say, like, I know in your eyes I didn't pass, but in my eyes I did. <laughs> and so I want to talk this out. I, I think we should have a conversation because I, I think you misunderstood my answers. And so let's wrap. Can you imagine doing that with God and saying, like, I, I think you're mistaken in the way in which you're evaluating me. I, 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 think, I think we should have a talk about this. No, think of Job. When God put him to the test, when all his friends were saying, give up, you had to have blown it somewhere. And he kept saying, I didn't. I really didn't. When his wife said to him, curse God and die. And he kept saying, no, I know my Redeemer lives. I know I'll stand before him someday. Job glorified God and proved the point to Satan that Job was willing to love God for nothing. With nothing in return, just love God because he's God. Now, which of us would pass that test? Which of us would say, go ahead, give me nothing, I'll still love you. I'll love you for who you are. Once you've been approved, once you've stood the test, you will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. That's the crown which is life. That's life in its fullness and completeness. That's life, including even eternal life. I want to be infused with his love. I want to rest confidently in him. I want my steadfastness, my resilience to reveal how much I love him. Only then will I find the success that I crave. Only then will I be able to say, you are glorified through my life. I should fade away and attract no attention to myself. I should live my life in such a way in which people see Christ in me. 
and see what it would be like to know the God who is our creator. People should see in me a person who doesn't fall apart in difficulty, but is trusting God through the greatest of difficulties and is willing to say, I believe in you. I trust in you. I don't understand why. But one thing it is doing for me, it's changing me and building in me endurance. I'll let endurance have its perfect result. And I will therefore be able to live in such a way that I'm pleasing to you in all respects. Would you pray with me? Father, we come before you and ask. Teach us. Help us to trust in you. I'm sure there'll be many tests and trials this week, many difficulties that will say, why, why, why? This makes no sense at all. But you understand, you know, you are a creator, you are a God. And you're seeking to develop us as disciples of your son, our savior. Thank you for the wisdom that comes from you. Thank you that James points us to this wisdom that's beyond our understanding. But help us, Father, to ask in faith, not doubting, and trusting you to give us the wisdom that we need to face these trials. May we pass the test. May we glorify you. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen.